Light Studios. Welcome to an episode of Leah and the Internet. I hope you enjoy the show. Leah and the Internet features rotating guests who discuss the impact the Internet has on the world. So who's Leah Devin Sorrentino? I'm an artist, currently located in Minneapolis. I'm sure this will come to a shock to many of my listeners, but besides being an artist, I also work in the tech industry as a digital strategist. Yes, my love for the internet runs both in my artistic practice and the job that helps fund my sick style and moderate lifestyle. Creatives emerging into the tech world is actually pretty common. My guest Becky Lang is a writer, journalist, podcaster, and also a strategist. We discuss what it's like to pursue our creative passions and digital professions and talk about the evolution into our roles. We also come to the conclusion that the combination of strategy and creativity might be contributing to a zen-like balance that is slightly unrealistic, but feels very validating. Hey, Becky Lang. Hello. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. It's been very nice to meet you. Yeah, we've known each other now for about 33 minutes, and I think it's been a really solid 33 minutes. We've had some great deep discussions, and it's just one of those times where you're like, Minneapolis seems small, but there's totally people I've never met. Just seen around. (laughs) Just seen that riffraff around. Probably have tons in common with. So it's a bigger city than you realize. I mean, now that we're best friends, I I feel like I don't need as much of an overview. But if you could tell us a little bit about yourself so my many listeners can uh, get to know you. Sure. So I'm Becky Lang. My day job, I'm a creative director at Superhuman, which is an ad agency in Uptown. It's really small. It's a startup. Super fun. I also am just a writer in general, so I write for City Pages. I've been writing for Wit and Delight, Kate Aaron's project, and um, was a co-founder of The Tangential with Jay Gabler and Katie Cisneros. I like to draw, so I have a little drawing company called Likeness Portraits. And then I have a couple podcasts of my own, Writingness. My super sweet obsession with Scotty Gunderson and then the Rose Ceremony, which is a, a bachelor <laughs> recap podcast with my sister in law, Caroline Olstad. I had never had Rose until I started watching The Real Housewives. Oh, yeah. And it's such a ritualistic thing in that show to the point where there's a particular brand that like everybody who watches The Housewives is obsessed with called Whispering Angel. Whispering Angel, wow. And I went through really great lengths to get a bottle of it to bring on a Real Housewives trip that I'm going on in June for me and my lady friends. Oh, wow. Do you have to order it online? No, it's just like any time a liquor store gets it in stock, it immediately sells out. Wow. The Bachelor has its own wine, I just learned. Or it has like three wines. One is called Fantasy Suite. I don't remember what the other two are called. But you can only get them online, and the shipping is, like, incredibly expensive. So <laughs> there should be, like, a rivalry between these two wines. To start dropping shipping? Or, or just, like, which one's better? Which one's more ridiculous? I don't know. Which reality TV rosé will win? There should be a taste test of all of them. Oh, yes. If I was a rich man, I would be, <laughs> I would be doing that. But I don't have access to any of these wines. So it seems like the episode's theme today is reality television, but it's not. It it, seems that way with me a lot. (laughs) (laughs) But it turns out these two strangers, Becky and Leah, in this adventure, have found out they have something pretty uh, inherently in common, which is they're both creative people. I like speaking about myself in the third person. (laughs) Both creative people, but also work in digital business tech strategy yeah creation so i thought we would start it off by 
just discussing two people who are creatives who need to pay rent. Exactly. A little bit about my day job is I do digital strategy for a gamification company, and that sounds like a fake job. Yeah, yeah. I think people think my job is fake a lot too. I, I'm pretty sure my parents have no idea what what I do. Oh. No. What does your day job consist of? I'm a creative director, so I do a lot of the same things it sounds like you do. You know, I'll help brands create like a voice and tone. I'll help them create a strategy and articulate that strategy. I'll help them create a content strategy so they know what to do with what we call their digital ecosystem. Sure. You know, all their properties online and um, to make content that's really relevant to their audience. Sometimes I'll even execute on that strategy and help them kind of kick off their content. But I usually don't run it in the long term, you know, usually their internal team will take over. I'm usually brought into a company that is trying to not so much create content, but they already have content or different digital spaces. And they want people, the word that we probably both hear at nauseum is they want people to engage more with these systems and be more proficient in them. So they will use game mechanics on their websites or mobile apps or internal employee portals to try to make their employees motivate their emotional uh, intrinsic motivators is what we call them. And my job is to assess audiences, find out what emotionally triggers them, and then think about what game mechanics you would put to that. Wow. So you kind of do some of the, the research part where you're figuring out the audience and like what makes them tick. And I maybe do some of that sometimes, but usually in my my job that would be done either by like a media planner or someone who studies all the digital touch points and like, sure. you know, what, what does this person do when they wake up and what do they do around noon and how yeah. is their phone involved? <laughs> What's interesting about being in a digital space or in like a, especially a strategic role is how many parallels there are to my personal creative pursuits that actually start to develop in my I like use air quotes for professional work because I think that that line gets blurred in my world. Mm-hmm. I assume it's similar for you as you're developing your own content for, you mentioned two podcasts, like multiple writing blogs, all this stuff. It's the things that I'm learning when I'm with customers then started to repeat in my personal stuff. And then things that I've learned by building audiences through art then translates to how I think that these companies can connect with their audiences. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I'm often really inspired by my work in my personal creative work. You know, like I'll sit down and think, why don't I have a content strategy? What's my content strategy? <laughs> yeah. And it's really hard to make one for yourself. It's hard to see yourself objectively. But also just like if you're a writer, you get really immersed in subjects that you didn't care about to begin with. And then suddenly you just care so much. Like I, I worked for a pet food brand um, for many years, um, developing content for them. And I actually like had to get a dog. Like I was like, I'm getting so hyped about dogs <laughs> all day. Like I need to go and get a dog. So we like moved and got a dog. And like, I don't know if I ever would have gotten a dog if I hadn't had that um, brand as a client. So it, 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 <laughs> I'm it, sure your dog is incredibly <laughs> thankful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. And, and then it goes both ways, you know, like then I worked on um, Totino's, the pizza brand, and they needed like a POV on humor. So then I had to be like, well, luck, lucky for you, I've been watching tons and tons <laughs> of TV for my whole life. Um, so hopefully I have some interesting opinions about what's funny right now. So they do kind of have a nice sort of cross permutation. There's often times in my job where I feel kind of like a fraud, right? Like 
uh, especially because I didn't go to school for business. I didn't go to school for a lot of these, a lot of the things that I'm now put in the position to do. But I realized art school was actually this kind of gear up of everything that you do as a visual artist is about obtaining audience and being compelling and trying to emotionally move people, whether that's through manipulation, extended discourse. And a lot of times the arts thinks about itself as this very singular system that has a very unique relationship with its audience. And what I've learned is that relationship is actually very similar, if not exact, to any other entity trying to connect with other humans. Mm. So I found that everything that I do with art actually translates to business and vice versa. Yeah. Which is when it was happening, was like, what, what? Like, art is... like an MBA, <laughs> that MFA. <laughs> yeah, I, I told you it was worth it, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find something similar, that they're not actually as unique or different yeah. in execution? I mean, I think it's kind of, it's really kind of up to you to, to figure out how to sell your skills as being relevant in the field you're in. Like, so I studied English, journalism, and cultural studies. I kind of like convinced my college that I could match those together and then went into advertising. And suddenly it was right at the time when brands wanted, you know, journalistic content. They wanted long form content. They didn't just want headlines. So then it was up to me to be like, here's why, you know, my experience writing for the college newspaper is relevant to what brands want to do. So I guess that goes back to the whole like kind of being a fraud thing or uh, the positive spin on that is I would say fake it till you make it, you know. Oh, it's (laughs) like I really need a tattooed on my body. At this yes. point. <laughs> yeah, maybe we can get the person who designed the Nevertheless She Persisted tattoo to do a fake it till you make, make it, it and we'll all just get one this weekend. But yeah, I'm a big believer in that. And that's part of the challenge or the thrill of it for me is like, can I come up with something I've never done and then just fig- figure out how to do it and then convince other people that I can do it? <laughs> yeah, I, I've flown to different cities to give presentations or do these workshops where I'm trying to like assess these different audiences within these weird, unique communities. Like the last one I had to go, the audience has nurses, right? I know huh. nothing about nursing. I know nothing about that field. And I remember like sitting in the hotel room like the morning before and I'd be like, all right, it's ready to pretend that you are a complete expert on healthcare right now and the emotional capacity of nurses within a stressful environment. What? How does this work? I guess I'm having trouble. Is this sure. like a focus group? Maybe. Am I at work right now? Yeah, <laughs> I'm like interviewing you for a job right now. I'm like, that sounds really interesting. You so, sound really good at this. <laughs> so so my, my job is to hear what are, what are we trying to get people to do? What is impeding them from doing that? And then what game mechanics tap into those ways that, okay, people feel like they're on an island. Well, what ways can we create collaboration? Oh, we can do that through creating group activities, you yeah. know, that type of thing. It's like empathy, you know, that's, that's such becoming such a buzzword. It's funny that empathy could ever be a buzzword, but it's becoming a buzzword in design and in advertising and marketing because people are like, people are being like, oh my God, we need more empathy. Like we need people who are actually going to go and understand nurses and what nurses are worried about before we go and create a product for them. And I wonder if that, now I'm going to go on like a total tangent. Um, I was going to say, you know, empathy, maybe that's the reason why creative people and artists get into marketing and digital strategy is because to be an artist, you kind of have to be an empathetic person. But then I started thinking maybe empathy is becoming a buzzword because so many women are like invading every... (laughs) 
<laughs> I think that that is an incredible segue on discussing okay, how did good. we... I wasn't quite sure where Yeah, was how did we get to the point of having these professions? And I do think that empathy plays a large part in it, or at least the creative perspective of being able to see systems uh, in a very different way, systems from my world. But even like if you think about content strategy mm-hmm. and like that type of audience, that's its own ecosystem. I have found that almost everybody that I work with in strategy has some type of arts background or is an artist. And I find that those people excel in this like new weird tech world where there's a disconnect between like the tech part and the audience. Like the mm-hmm. audience doesn't care about how like the magic happens yeah. and like things pop up on a screen. They only care about the user experience and what they're consuming. And I feel that like these two worlds, the audience and tech, have a really difficult time communicating with one another. And that's where artists have kind of come in or creatives have come in. Yeah, that I've never thought about it in that exact way. But I think that that really rings true. And I know I was saying to you earlier, when I started working in advertising, I expected strategists to be like people who are really good at using LexisNexis, which is like the (laughs) U of M's research database. Like I thought they were going to be people like pulling up scientific abstracts and like cross-referencing things and being awesome at citations. But a lot of strategy, as far as I've seen, is much more in that kind of emotional intelligence vein. And it's about finding like a really unique positioning or like a place or or like something to do that no one else is doing and then articulating what companies want to do in a way that's kind of poetic and that resonates with people and does kind of maybe require a little bit more of a a writing degree to get to an interesting place. So yeah, I think think that is a really good way to put it. My personal journey on how I got to become a digital strategist was I, I think that if I went back even five years ago and was like, Leah, you're going to become a digital strategist and work for some company out of Silicon Valley. Uh, And I'd be like, I don't know any of those words. (laughs) That's essentially what I would have said. And I would have been like, I like the internet a lot, whatever. That would have been the arc of that conversation between me and like old me and new me. Yeah. And the journey of how I got here was kind of bizarre. I graduated from my MFA at MCAD, Minneapolis College of Art. You do have an MFA. I I, like threw that out there, but you do. Yeah, I do. Uh, I don't have an MFA to solicit. (laughs) Well, I mean, like the long relationship that we had, I assume that you knew about my background. (laughs) Should have been more stocking. Well, I graduated with no job prospects, and most uh, MFA students, I think, are ushered into this idea that you will teach. So I assumed I would teach. I didn't have a passion for that, but I had a passion for money and uh, eating pizza when I want and making artwork when I could, which all seemed to like line up to going into higher ed. And I started teaching and adjuncting. Uh, the, the money part's not there. I would imagine that's yeah. not a ton of money in being an adjunct professor. So I started adjuncting and, and then working at the MIA doing like children's workshops, which like... I don't like children or workshops, so that was, I was like, this is what I'm supposed to do because if you have an arts degree, you're supposed to work in the arts. Yeah. And then to supplement those very lucrative positions, said sarcastically, I also took a job as a receptionist at a tech company. And that was like, so this is it. I will be working three jobs and struggling and then trying to make art when I can. Sounds very difficult. Yeah, it was. But then the marketing department at this tech company realized that I knew how to use Photoshop and use other tools that I learned as an artist. And then they realized I could write because I had a minor in creative writing. And then I got swooped away from the receptionist piece 
got a full-time position in a marketing job and I was like, okay, now I'm like this marketing person. What? I, yeah. like, I don't know anything about marketing, but I could keep coming up with strategic ways that our marketing message could be disseminated across the internet because I was really familiar with the internet and I was getting more into digital artwork. And then I started making these weird web videos because that was a natural evolution to all of those things I just said. And then between the strategy piece and then creating web content, another company was like, hey, we see that you have like a digital prowess, strategic background, and you're weird. You want to come work for this gamification company. And that was this like strange evolution to what I'm doing now. That's awesome. It sounds like there's kind of like a secret sauce too into getting recruited is just seeming like a likable person. You know, like they're probably <laughs> looking like the weird part. Like you seem weird. And like, uh, you know, a lot of these newer companies have that, that really specific culture that they protect so much. So when they hire, they're like, we want we want our fellow weirdos. You know, like we don't want to bring in someone too normal who's going to like babysit all of us. So like there is something to be said for being yourself. If you wanna. And I think I consistently kept putting out new content, new artistic content. And having that paired with a professional background, I think, is what continued the jettison into this type of career. For me, I well, I was the A&E editor at the Minnesota Daily in college, which is like the best job ever if you're in college. It's so much fun. Um, and then I interned at the Star Tribune and Metro Magazine, and so I was going up this journalism path. And then I graduated right during the recession in 2010, and suddenly there were no journalism jobs. And I'd always been really interested in advertising ever since I was a kid. And I didn't major in advertising because my sister told me that would be selling my soul to the devil. And I, <laughs> I like, took that really to heart. But then, you know, I was like, you know, I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to try to get an advertising internship and see where it goes. And luckily, I um, ended up getting a call back from Zeus Jones, which is in Uptown. They really needed a writer. And they were really interested in a journalist because they wanted someone to write more long, long-form content. So it was a really great fit. I ended up working there for six years. And it was just a, a great place to work because they taught me everything I know, basically. You know, And it was like a great environment where I could roll in and make really embarrassing mistakes and fail and still kind of have that support. So I think, I think um, like I've been saying, that fake it till you make it attitude is important and um, if you can find a place where you can kind of fumble your way into doing what you're supposed to do that's that's a big blessing in your career so does that answer does that answer the question of how I started doing this yeah I think so okay I also realized as I started doing these jobs that I didn't think aligned to my passion which it turns out more and more it does I was really reticent to uh, compromise on things that I thought would impact other things that I cared about. So for example, I've continued to work for small companies or startups because of the, the time flexibility or for what you're saying, like the risk that you're allowed to take or mistakes that you, you're mm-hmm. allowed to make because the mistakes can feel huge because it's so small, but they actually have like very little consequence because like it's so small. Well, and then I think if you ever are in a management position, even like I was briefly in college, which is kind of crazy, but like you see everyone makes mistakes. Sure. And so then you're a little more like when you see yourself make a mistake, you're like, yeah, it's probably everyone's doing this on their own scale somewhere, somehow. So to go back to one thing that you said, which 
actually comes up in conversation for me more often than not. That idea of like selling your soul or selling out or even balancing this like professional and personal existence. And I think that oftentimes, especially my friends or especially other artist friends that I have think that like I'm living in conflict. Yeah. (laughs) I guess I'm an idealistic person in some ways, but not in that way. So when I encounter people who think having a career where you make money is somehow selling out. I just, I'm like, okay, bye. (laughs) When I got into advertising and everyone was like, we're obsessed with Coke Zero and candy bars and fast food and we all like drive Mazdas. I was like, okay, I found my people. (laughs) I'm not trying to be like the perfect human being. Sure. I'm not trying to be like Henry David Thoreau in my life. (laughs) Well, uh, it's also like this weird assumption that if you are not a part of like those type of organizations that you somehow are eluding like capitalism or something like that like everything that we all do is participating in the same system and like not everything is about manipulating people to do the wrong thing i i, I don't yeah. know I, it's really weird like i i often there's some parts of my job especially in terms of like the employee engagement where it's like essentially how can we get employees to be more efficient faster but there's also a lot of conversation around how can we make people's jobs more rewarding fulfilling Mm -hmm. and um, substantial it's like not as cold because like in reality there's nothing that I'm going to do as an artist or as a digital strategist that is going to all of a sudden free all of these employees to have these like blissful like subsidized living situations I don't know yeah I I think it's like capitalism at least in America is inevitable right (laughs) at least for the time being Um, definitely in the short term (laughs) you might as well fill some of these companies with people who get it or people who are going to try to be good people and try to bring some consciousness to capitalism and bring some like you know if someone's going to run candy bar brand hopefully it's someone who's going to make content or commercials or advertising that's meaningful or transparent yeah and i think that's one thing that uh, the abundance of content and match with technology is the the avenue for more transparency Mm -hmm. i mean like i i drink diet coke kind of obsessively and i'm sure i've talked about it at nauseum on anything i've ever been on including this podcast but i love diet coke I'm also a 33-year-old woman that understands that Diet Coke is super bad for me. And I also understand uh, a lot of other fundamental things that are negative about the Coca-Cola brand and a bunch of other things. I also still love Diet Coke. I, I, it's not like, um, I don't know where I was really going with that. But <laughs> yeah, it's like a, a certain self-awareness that can help you lead to more transparency. Like, I mean, talking about um, like a candy bar brand and, you know, making a dumb Super Bowl commercial is one thing. But then when you get into sustainability or nutrition or something that companies have to do to be good stewards to society, you can have a huge impact. Like, if you care about animal rights, you know, you can have a tremendous impact being a journalist or a writer or a protester. Of course, I don't want to downplay that. But if you take some of that knowledge and you bring it to, you know, one of the biggest food brands in the world and you help them kind of adapt and change and please these consumers demanding more transparency in animal rights, animal farming, for example, you could have a, you could have a huge impact. Maybe that's the <laughs> marketer in me, like, justifying. Even as we were talking, I think that somebody 
who is listening to this probably would make the argument against us that we are trying to negotiate or rationalize certain aspects of our life to suit our needs, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, that's what marketers do, right? We're very persuasive. (laughs) (laughs) We convince ourselves whatever. (laughs) But that rationalization, I think, extends far beyond these type of jobs and roles. And I think that the assumption that they only have a negative impact on the people that engage with them is, to me, I think, very naive. And even from a personal level, the amount of insight that I've learned from how people participate in actual life through trying to get them to engage, whether it's with a brand or a system or whatever, I have taken that back and have have incorporated that information into my personal pursuits and my personal artwork big time. Then there's scenarios where like, okay, I'm helping sell more sandals. That, that, (laughs) That might be a reality of my life. But then I'm also taking the flexibility of that job, the insights from that audience, and then incorporating it into a podcast like this. Yeah. I mean, really, you're a journalist or you're a curious person, and working in this field makes you learn about things you wouldn't have cared about or looked into otherwise, and that makes you, you know, someone with more of an open mind. Just just to double down on, on <laughs> the rationalization I was talking about, before, I just keep thinking about this. So I read that, you know, one of the big trends for brands this year is to become sort of like conscious citizens or for brands to participate in politics or brands to take a stand, um, as they like to say. And I've been thinking about that lately because I I think like what's going on in politics right now is this whole like public sector shutdown that Trump and Steve Bannon and all of them want to create. And it's going to fall a lot more on the private sector to kind of create the climate of our country and to stand up for rights or to put money behind causes. And that's already happening, you know, with Lyft um, versus Uber. And even if you can count a charity like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation um, coming in, all this birth control activism in the wake of all this Republican legislation. So, you know, if the private sector is going to kind of have a lot to say about our life and stand up for our causes, which hopefully they'll do. Who knows? Hopefully there's people helping them do that in a way that feels relevant and feels, it has that empathy that we were talking about. I think that's a really important statement because this current administration has been pretty open about its dismantling of federal agencies that right now are performing a buttload of services that we're not even considering. Like Mm -hmm. we go and drink water out of a tap and there's a regulatory body that makes sure that water's clean. We eat food. There's a regulatory body from the federal government that's making sure that that food's okay. I mean, just those like little nuanced yeah. things that um, we are dealing with an administration who is obtuse to how significant all of that is. Because as we already pointed out, capitalism's not ending tomorrow. Honestly, money is going to need to fund a lot of things without creating a social conscious for these companies that have really kind of rampantly abuse their status as citizens, right? Mm-hmm. Like like companies as people. Here's this moment, and this is where a lot of consumers have power, which to me makes jobs like ours a little bit more pre- prevalent and important, is if we're trying to educate consumers and make things more transparent, and we're trying to drive them towards socially conscious brands or create socially conscious brands, 
that might be the buffer we need until 2018 or 2020. Yeah. I mean, it, like Facebook is the biggest example. Like Mark Zuckerberg is creating his own public policy or, or whatever he's doing. But he is sitting on like $40 billion he wants to donate or invest, as he would say, in different causes. And that's going to set a huge example. But at the same time, you need people in between to like convince brands that don't want to jump on that bandwagon that like, hey, these 16-year-olds who are getting their first part-time job, are not going to buy your granola bar if you don't yeah. support gay marriage or whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like somebody's got to sort of sell the rest of their brands into it. But the, but the, again, like you said, now I'm just rationalizing. Um, yeah, but that, that is my rationale. <laughs> I make work and like that's not tangible, right? Like somebody can't hold it. Somebody can't hold a web video. Can't wear it as a t-shirt. Yeah, can't wear it as a t-shirt. Can't hang it above their couch. No lapel pin. Yeah, so I have found that this way of life, finding like this type of job, has allowed me to do things like go to residencies because I can work remotely and I can work um, on my art and at my job. Or it's provided me funding to create free podcasts, things like that. that yeah. Um, so I don't, it's not so much about balancing my job and my uh, my artistic career as much as they are intertwined to be successful. Yeah, and that's something, I mean, I didn't necessarily expect about adult life, you know? Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I thought my job and my passion would be one. I grew up really admiring Allie McBeal as a kid because I, I couldn't really remember having a role model like that and suddenly, you know, Allie McBeal rolls in and she's like, I'm a self-sustained career woman. And every night I go to the club and listen to, um, what was her singer's name? Vonda Shepard. And like just drink gin and <laughs> this tonics. This is a deep cut right uh, now. <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, that's going to be me. I'm going to work and love my work. And then at night just, you know, sit back and relax. And I never realized like oh, I might get into one job and then need my nights to be, like, my second job, which is my own personal passion projects. Um, I never realized that, and then I never realized that they would have that interplay that you're talking about, where one kind of inspires the other and vice versa. I also had the assumption that to be successful, you would have to give up your passion, which is something that I always struggled with or was really worried about that concession. And, like, it started to happen when I was teaching, where it, that is such a time-consuming and emotionally-consuming job. And I felt like I had nothing else, where I, where I was being built up that the road to having a sustainable art practice was to maintain in the, in the art sphere. And I was like, what? I'm really tired. And, <laughs> like, I have to grade a bunch of things. Yeah. Um, or I was in, like, a, I was in some other unique professions where I was an airbrush artist or a tattoo artist. And I was like, oh, well, that's, I'm making money off of art, so... And then that just like killed my passion for those, that type of art. I was like, I'm never gonna make any kind of object again because of like tattooing and airbrushing. Yeah. So it, it was almost a relief when I found this kind of way of life. Cause I was like, oh, I don't have to extinguish my passion to like continue to clothe myself and have housing. So one point is, like, respect for the teachers out there. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really hard job. But, yeah, I think there is that expectation that you would have to give up your passion. Or or if your work was your passion, that you'd start to hate it, you know, or the pressure would be on you all the time. Like, I want to write a novel. If my job was writing a novel, would I start to hate it? Would I start to 
feel this like resentment towards the ideas I wish I could produce but wasn't when in reality like I work full time so getting to write fiction for 20 minutes a night is like a fun little escape sure and that we were kind of talking about this when I first got here is I'm not sure if this is what you were saying but this is kind of how I heard it we were just talking about how if you want to be an artist and you want to have a job and you want to be a writer or a journalist it helps to have all of those different balls in the air because then you know, it takes the pressure off of any certain one so that, you know, if you're feeling really bad about your journalism or your writing, you can paint for a while, you can make a video, or you can focus on your work. And it kind of eases some of that pressure and hopefully makes you a bit more of a well-rounded person in general. Those limitations also help with prioritization for me. Like, what do I have to get done and what's my capacity and how do I decide like what my day will be composed of. And I find that when I have all of the time, I have like I have very little motivation to do anything. Mm-hmm. But when I know that I have deadlines and expectations and all of these different things, I personally manage my time much better. Yeah. I don't know if I could, my artistic practice could exist without some type of tether in like a job. Yeah, that's a really great point is you're kind of forced to prioritize when there's so many things you want to do. And that keeps you structured. And that's kind of, I, you know, I quit my job and I freelanced for about a year and before I worked at Superhuman full-time again. And one thing I found freelancing, because that had always been my dream, is like, I'm going to work from home and I'm going to, like, structure my day however I want. I'm going to do everything every day. Like, I had this big yeah. plan. And I kind of found that the structure of a job did help me with my creativity and it did help me know what to do when and that there were a few things like that you can get done at work in between meetings or whatever like resubmitting your car license (laughs) form or or whatever that's kind of hard to do when you don't have that structure of a life and then I found that you know without the structure I could easily use that extra time towards things that didn't fulfill any of my goals you know like I would I would get into making, like, homemade granola, and I'm like, I'm going to spend three hours on this today. <laughs> and, I'm like, I never really envisioned my year of freelancing would involve so much just time, like, trying to be this domestic goddess or something. It was, like, a weird side effect of being at home so much. No, I totally get it. <laughs> How many started and failed crocheted blankets I have is pretty obscene. So I, I think that the, the overall verdict on this, like, balance between professional and personal is it, it's not so much of a balance at all as as much as kind of an intertwined like, like symbiosis. Yeah, like it's coming together. <laughs> you need a where, scientist to come in. Where it's these two things that kind of build and continuously benefit these unique parts of our life. I feel very affirmed by that conclusion, yeah. and I'm very validated right now. Yeah, I feel sort of like oh maybe we're both doing everything right. <laughs> but, maybe we faked it until we made it. Yes, I do. I do. I feel like we should caveat and say like you need to have a working mom come in here now and just tell us how balanced really isn't possible at all. Because then I yeah. go talk to my sister who has three kids and she's an architect, and I'm just like. Jenny, your house will never be clean ever for the next 15 years. Sorry, Jenny. And you will never get to work out. And like, like I, I don't want to come in here and say, like, balance is possible, ladies. You can do everything. You know, I don't want to create, like, an unrealistic POV that, like, shuts out working mothers. So I'm, I'm sure that's a whole other level. Oh, yeah. I think that for us, these two people on this podcast. Yes, for us, too. We have 
in this particular stage of life, right now, not forever, have found a symbiotic relationship between both our professional and personal creative pursuits. Yes, and for me also, just taking care of my dog. Yeah. Do you have and, a dog? And sorry, Jenny, about your dirty house. <laughs> uh, thanks so much, Becky, for being on the show. I didn't ask, but I must know, where can people find you online? I have my own website, leckybang.com, which is Becky Lang with the B and the L switched. Find me on Twitter, at leckybang. And then I'm on SoundCloud, I think, as Lucky Bang, too, if you want to listen to any of my podcasts. Awesome. Thanks so much again for this. Thanks for having me. This was a great discussion. I hope you enjoyed Lay on the Internet. Make sure to listen to Becky Lang's podcast, The Rosé Ceremony, and My Super Sweet Obsession. You can find both of those on her website, LuckyBang.com. As always, please share your thoughts and opinions on Twitter at and the Internet and on the blog at LayandTheInternet.com. You can also find the show on facebook.com slash internet. Help people discover this podcast by rating it on iTunes.